You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Hello listeners, this is Mark Sharvari, your host today. And this month is Women's History Month. So in Locally Source Science, we are honoring women scientists from the Finger Lakes area. So first, let's hear a story from Kitty Gifford. Welcome to Locally Birding. From the bird feeder to the skies, look out and look up. Today, I'd like to share with you a story about one of the early nature study pioneers who was based at Cornell University. Her name is Anna Botsford Comstock. Her handbook of nature study remains in print today, first published in 1911. It's now in its 24th edition. Long a standard textbook for teachers, it has been translated into eight languages. Anna Botsford came to Cornell in November 1874 and took John Henry Comstock's basic entomology course during the winter of 1875. Let us cut to the chase and reveal that a friendship grew and by 1878 they married. What followed also were numerous professional collaborations, including a career as a science illustrator for her husband's lectures and publications on insects. Her involvement in the nature study movement and the inception of the movement at Cornell began began at a meeting in 1894. She would become famous for bringing her students and other teachers outdoors to study nature. She was the first female professor at Cornell. By 1896, the sum of $8,000 was given by the state to the Cornell College of Agriculture for teaching nature study in the rural schools. Liberty Hyde Bailey and Anna Botsford Comstock visited the rural areas traveling by horse and buggy. They recruited a promising teacher, John Walton Spencer, in Westfield, New York. With Spencer's help, the nature study movement expanded rapidly across the country and schools were clamoring for nature study circular letters for their teachers. The circulars became the handbook. A few examples from the lesson on robins in the handbook illustrates the simple, timeless, and curiosity-driven approach of the nature study movement that emphasized observation. A quote, the object of this lesson is to form in the pupils a habit of careful observation and to enable them to read for themselves the interesting story of this little life which is lived every year before their eyes. This lesson on robins is recommended to be shared when robins return, for example in March in the northern states. The students begin to note the robin's arrival date. They ask questions about where the robins spent the winter and what does it eat when it first arrives in the spring. By April, they are continuing with their nature study and answering questions about what time of day does the robin sing? What sound does it make when they see a crow or a hawk? When did your pair of robins begin to build their nest? And so on. You too can spend time with the robins this spring and write your own story on their interesting lives. You may even contribute your observations to a citizen science project at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology called Nestwatch. Tell us what you see. Tweet at FLX Science Radio. For locally sourced science, this is Kitty Gifford. Thank you, Kitty. Fun fact I met the next interviewee, Isabet Encourt, first time in my life, in Comstock Hall at Cornell University, a hall named after Anna and John Comstock. So yes, you guessed it correctly. We are going to talk about insects and science communication. 
Um, my name is Issa Dettencourt and I am a curatorial assistant of entomology at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University, which is in Philadelphia. And I also am a science communicator. I authored a book, um, The Backyard Bugs of Philadelphia. And I also host a podcast called The Bug Scope, which airs weekly. And I started it about four years ago. So how are you connected to the Finger Lakes? How are you connected to Cornell University? Uh, I went to Cornell for undergrad and studied entomology. When I was growing up, I knew I wanted to be an entomologist for a long time. It was either going to be an astronaut or an entomologist. And I really liked how insects are so tangible. You can find them anywhere. And aliens are a little hard to find. So, <laughs> And insects are like the aliens that are on planet Earth. So I pursued entomology and when I was in high school um, discovered Cornell and set my sights on going to Cornell and, and doing entomology there. I also did the plant science major too which was awesome. I studied abroad in Costa Rica and that's where I was like oh my gosh insects and plants they're so connected in evolution and in their life histories that I was like Gotta learn more about these plants also. Do you remember that defining moment or moments that made you decide it's like, I want to learn insects and plants? I do have some very fond childhood memories. This is when I was like four. There was a red animal butterfly that would land on us in the backyard in the summer. And it, we'd see it um, like every day. And we thought it was our friend. We named it Flyvee. And it was very cool and very special to stand there and have Flyvee land on our hands and to be able to look at Flyvee. And what's so funny is that like years later at Cornell, I'm taking my entomology class and I learned that it wasn't a friendship for, from Flyvee's perspective. Flyvee, probably an, a male admiral butterfly, was trying to scare us away from the sun patch that he had claimed as his territory. So when he landed on us, it was him being like, get out of here, rather than, <laughs> hello. <laughs> where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Lower Marion, which is right outside of Philadelphia. And that's why I was really excited to get connected with the local Natural History Museum, the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, which I connected with during my senior year of high school. At Cornell, they had a um, DIY internship program as a financial aid program. And so for it, it, it like covers part of the pay if you pair up with a nonprofit. And so I paired up with the Academy of Natural Sciences and did an internship my between my junior and my senior year at the museum there. It was very, very cool to get involved with that collection. So it sounds like early on you started to understand the importance of not just learning science, but also communicating science. After you graduated from Cornell with your degree in land science and entomology, how did you decide to go to this direction when you are actually using science communication in your daily life and not just for your work but also to express your passion I think I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I graduated I think that I felt that like oh like next I go to graduate school and like do a research project well sorry there's a moth flying outside my window which is exciting because no. it's the second moth I've seen this spring it's a beautiful thing <laughs> yeah I graduated but I think I, I always had that drive to communicate science since when I was younger. One of the things that surprised me was not just how awesome the bugs are and how much there is to discover even right in your backyard, 
but also how little my friends and my like parents' friends and even my parents like knew about the insects in our backyard and the good ones even. And so many, I, I picked up on how so many people were afraid and I'm like, oh, there's nothing to be afraid. Like it's, you know, a little fuzzy caterpillar that I think instilled the mission to go and promote and help people see and appreciate all of the different insects that help make our world go round. In case you are just tuning in, this is Locally Source Science. I'm Mark Sharvari, I'm your host today, and interviewing Issa Betancourt, who's a scientist and science communicator. In the next segment, I'm going to ask her how she started on social media platforms and how she became this science influencer. Um, initially, uh, I started off with sharing uh, my photos through Instagram and also Twitter. After a little while, I kind of felt like I was reaching the same audiences or reaching other people who are also entomologists, for example, which is fun, but I also wanted to reach new audiences. So I was looking for other ways to do that. And that's when I found live broadcasting. I found Periscope, which was owned by Twitter. I looked around on it and nobody else was doing really science on it, at least natural history type of science. And that's when I decided to start testing it out. With the live broadcasting, it was a great platform because discoverability was high. So when I do choose a platform to go on, I think about, okay, how are people going to find me? And with Periscope, it was awesome because they had this big global map that you could spin around and find where live broadcasts were happening or where live broadcasts had happened in the last 24 hours. So that's one way that people were able to find me and I was able to grow an audience. Uh, over the last four years, I gained 12,000 followers, which was like so awesome and amazing and reached even more people because, you know, not everyone who taps in and says hello is going to click the follow button too. Because there's this dialogue you can have between the broadcaster that can that allows the viewers to probe the broadcaster and ask questions. So that's super unique. And the rawness of going live too is really special and adds this extra human element that might not otherwise show up in um, more polished pieces, which I think is really cool and really special. What happened after Periscope shut down? Periscope announced it'd be, it'd be shutting down. They, the announcement came out in December and it's going to be a read-only platform in the end at the end of March. And so it's been a big moving process. It's been a big process to learn the new platform and HAPS it has is a really interesting platform. Being an early adopter um, is great. There's a lot of risk involved because you don't know if the platform might take off or what might exactly happen, but but you also get a lot of exposure in the beginning too. And you become, you get connections with the development team. I have direct connections to the development team of this new platform so I can help shape it the way that I want it to be and the way that will help me communicate my science most effectively, which has been really great. Talking about early adapters, uh, so you were already on Clubhouse too, weren't you? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's a relatively new platform, but it has no video components. So when you're thinking about using just audio, like this podcast, or or doing what you are doing very frequently is using a, a video component. Do you have any preference? I mean, when you are talking about insects, do people really need to see the subject of your communication? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think 
the answer is it's up to you as a communicator, which way you want to go and what you're comfortable with, because you can paint beautiful pictures of insects with your voice. That's for sure. And with your descriptions. And, and I think one thing that's really powerful in communication is, and, and one way to do effective communication is to spark imagination. And I, I, I saw that on, on like, for example, now with Clubhouse being a relatively new platform that when people start their own clubs and conversations, very few people show up. So how did you, how did you build your audience? Because when you probably first started, you did not have these hundreds and hundreds of people joining. I'm glad you asked that. When I first started, I did only get like one or two people coming in, but that was fine with me because I didn't even know really what I was doing. So (laughs) people would come in and when there's only one or two people, they're like, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, good, how are you? And it's just like very chill. And when people start and don't worry about who there, who isn't there, just figure it out yourself and just have fun with your with with yourself and and trying out this new thing and the the best broadcasts I've had are ones where I was having a lot of fun too where I'm like in a good mood and excited about what we're looking at point is to share the science but also have a positive experience and have fun doing that this is Mark Sharvari for locally sourced science and I'm interviewing Isa Betancourt who's an entomologist and a science communicator and I asked her what are her next steps What's the next adventure coming up? This past year, I was selected um, for Fulbright. And then on top of that, I was selected for not just the Fulbright, but the Fulbright National Geographic Storytelling Fellowship, which was totally a dream come true. As someone interested in science communication, as a science communicator, it's really exciting to get to be connected um, with National Geographic since they do so much wonderful science communication. For my project, I'll be going to the this field station in Kalimantan in Borneo and looking at the insect community, I'll be photographing it. And that's, that's going to be part of the storytelling part of the fellowship. And then I will be creating an insect collection to document the life there. So recently the researchers who run this field station started damming up the forest again so that it would uh, be restored. And so I'll be looking at the effects of the restoration on the community of insects. It's a very poorly studied area. And so I know that we're going to document a lot of species that will be new to science. And then also a bunch that will be um, maybe just not recorded for the area. And I'm excited to work with the entomologists over in Indonesia on that project. So I'll be there for a full year and you can follow along on my social media channels um, at Isa Betabug is where I am on Instagram and Twitter. Those are my primary ones. And then also HAPS, which is the live broadcasting channel. Since March, March is a Women's History Month, do you feel like women are properly represented in, in science communication and the mm-hmm. sciences? I have definitely gotten the comment on my show like, you're a girl and you, and you like bugs. What? Like I have gotten that comment. <laughs> and so I'm like, yes, like even more of a reason for me to do what I'm doing to represent and show people that anybody can um, go take a look and dive into science and explore the world of entomology. Thank you, Isa. And we look forward to following your new adventure. Next, you will hear from two women scientists, Nancy Ruse, is interviewing Anna Lavina. 
Anna is a colleague of mine. She's an active learning initiative postdoc at Cornell University. She recently took my science communication course, and she's also very much involved with potato research. If you're interested in Nancy's work, she was interviewed in episode 106 that you can find on locallysourcedscience.org. You're listening to Locally Sourced Science, and this is Nancy Ruiz. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Anna Levina about her research in active learning in plant sciences. Welcome, Anna. Would you like to tell us more about your research and your career path? Uh, sure. So as, uh, as Nancy mentioned, I am working as an active learning postdoc at the School of Integrative Plant Science at Cornell University. Before I was an active learning postdoc, I did my PhD here at Cornell in plant breeding and genetics, focusing on potatoes and specifically potato genetics in the aspects of potato chip making. While I was doing my PhD, I TA'd a lot, and that really got me interested in teaching and really communicating this information to the public, which led me also to take an, uh, an improv class at Cornell. Uh, this class uh, titled uh, How to Use Improv in presentations and teaching was a gateway for me about different active learning techniques that you can use and also how to use storytelling in really any aspect of information. So while, while as an active learning postdoc, I've kind of have several different paths. I'm mostly working with the core courses at the school, working with freshmen and sophomores with different classes. It's a five-year grant that I'm on to work with two courses a semester and I've been focusing on trying to kind of do different activities. And we have done video projects fairly successfully where we ask the students to film a video, a four to six minute video or three to five minute video about a topic and explain it to their peers. We found, we found that it's important, and I've kind of learned this myself, it's important to be prepared to teach because you learn so much about the subject and how to deliver information. But I know the students are not comfortable mm -hmm. getting up in front on the podium in front of the classroom. And so this was a way for them to get ready to teach without actually having to teach. There was a lot of work done on metacognition about, which is how to think about studying and that it's really important if you need to explain the information, even if you just have to explain it to your goldfish. <laughs> That sounds very useful. And so you say that um, you focus a lot on undergrad and grad students? I mostly work with undergrads. I work with graduate students in as as TAs. And any course that I'm in, if the graduate students really want to get involved with teaching, I welcome that. We have a TA right now in the course that I'm I'm working with who's interested in teaching. And so I take any suggestions. Um, the other aspects that we're kind of putting in right now is focusing on training undergraduates in scientific writing and also a little bit of scientific communication. Well, that's pretty cool. So are you associated with Mark's class? I have taken Mark's class. That was my, uh, I was kind of self-taught science communicator. I started li uh, live tweeting conferences while I was a graduate student when I was attending National Association of Plant Breeders. And I really enjoyed it and realized that there was this whole world of science communication on Twitter. Yeah, that's true. Twitter is a great tool. I didn't know before. I, I heard about it from 
a friend of uh, mine from undergrad who live tweeted conferences uh, in marine biology because my undergrad the degrees in marine biology. And so that got me interested in this whole live tweeting conference and I found that it's useful. And then I've I've heard about Mark's before his uh, investigative biology course. And then I saw that he was offering a course over winter session. And so I took it. And so th for three weeks, we learned all about different science communication techniques. And I would highly recommend this course mm -hmm. for any undergraduate or graduate student who is interested in learning science communication. So you mentioned that you did your undergrad in marine biology? Yeah, so I did my undergrad uh, in marine biology at Duke University. I have a master's degree in oncology from University at Buffalo, Roswell Park Division. And then I have a PhD in plant breeding and genetics. And it all makes sense because it's all applied biology. <laughs> yes. I learned really early on that anything I study, if I need in a real world application. It makes it a lot easier to learn. Yeah. And so that kind of makes sense. Biology is biology. It's just you go from learning about crabs to humans to plants. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I did my undergrad in physics and biology, and I was studying tropical parasites and infectious disease. And now I'm in my PhD in biomedical engineering, but I don't do any engineering at all. I just, I wanted to focus on something medical, also to have that kind of applied world or applied science thing to make it easier and more interesting to me. So I switch fields to Alzheimer's disease. There you go. Um, I highly recommend, I don't know that I said I would recommend people switching fields, so keep that as an option. You're not regimented or thrown into this pigeonhole box of whatever you did your undergraduate in. My advisor, Walter DeYoung, who is a potato breeder at uh, the School of Plant Sciences, did his PhD on, on viruses. He was a virologist. His father was a famous potato breeder. He didn't want to be a breeder up until this job came up at Cornell, and I just released the top four potato varieties. Well, that's really interesting. And so what kind of specific research on potatoes did you do on your PhD? Was it something like applied to the United States or more like globally? It was mostly focused on the U.S. at CALS, at Cornell. We are a land-grant institution, so we have stakeholders. In our case, it was the potato breeders. In New York State, most of the potato production goes toward making potato chips. And the West Coast is mostly make it, going to making French fries. Mm. So we focus 60% of our breeding program, maybe even higher, on creating a white of potato chips, or namely releasing varieties that when you make potato chips, fry white. Currently, what the way we score, uh, we select varieties for whiter potato chips is we make potato chips for two and a half months starting late December, early January, up until March, where our tech will fry up potato chips and the field house crew eats really well. <laughs> so did you eat a lot of potato chips? I personally didn't. I ate some when he would bring it over. My specific project was, my first project failed, uh, which happened in a PhD a lot. The deer ate the potatoes. And so we, we switched to a different project uh, looking at potato metabolites, which are small chemical compounds of potatoes, proteins, amino acids, things like that. And we were trying to look at cooked potatoes and see if we can find a link between metabolites, certain metabolites presence and genetic control. And also trying to see if we can link that to a potato chip color. We found, we found actually inadvertently, because we were just looking at so many metabolites, that a, a potential candidate gene for 
glycoalkaloids, which are the poisonous compounds of potatoes that all breeders are trying to keep at a lower level. Potatoes part of the nightshade family. There are poisonous compounds. No breeder will ever release a variety that's higher than that. So you don't have to worry about that your potatoes are poisonous. But if the level is very high, we have to drop that uh, that candidate. Oh, okay. And so my advisor has lost some of his potato uh, clones that were we, we've been evaluating for them for four or five years. Because you only, it's an expensive test. You only test for that level toward the end of the breeding cycle. And it can take up to seven to 10 years to go from cross to potato release. And so we have a couple of candidate genes that we're hoping to see if we can screen in the lab these seedlings without having to go through years of evaluation. And uh, we, did, we did find potential other targets for potato chips. The, the, main, the main aspect was that glycoalkaloid gene, but also just a method for looking at big data sets of using network analysis where you group the metabolites together based on how they act. And then you look at those groups as opposed to look at 981 of them at a time. Well, that's pretty cool. Very useful applications for not only the field of plant science, but in general, right? Yeah, I think I think it can be useful. I, I highly recommend if anyone has a big data set that they're looking at, network analysis is really the way to go. One other side effect of me working with potatoes, if you want to call that, is we have a, well, potatoes are not sold by variety names in the grocery store. So if you go to a grocery store and buy white, red potatoes, you don't know which variety you're going to get. You could get a mixed one. That's why if you go one, one week, it works great. The other week, it doesn't work great. The only variety sold in the U.S. is Yukon Gold, which is a decent potato variety. It doesn't work very well in this climate. So we have potato varieties such as Cuca Gold and Lehigh, which are yellow potatoes that grow better here. But the other variety that we have inadvertently discovered is New York 155. It's a light pink skin, white flesh potato that makes the creamiest mashed potatoes. Before COVID hit, we had it. Uh, Statler were serving on their menu. So did Hazelnut Kitchen. Yeah. And one of the things that I've learned in terms of science communication is sometimes it's literally as easy as picking up a phone and calling the restaurant and say, hey, I have this potatoes. I'm working with the Cornell Potato Program. Would you like to try it in your kitchen? Just send me a report kind of thing. And uh, that's what happened. I walked into Hazelnut Kitchen with a bag of a 50-pound bag of potatoes, and they, they made gnocchi out of them. Uh, they said it worked really well. They then contacted their farmer who grows potatoes for them, and I know they grew some over the summer. The weather wasn't ideal. And it was the same thing with Statler. I was at the Chili Fest. Was it now? Yeah, last year, actually, because it was right before COVID shut everything down. And the chief exec chef for the Statler was there and I was talking to him. And the next day I know I'm bringing him a bag of potatoes. So our goal, like we have, it's unfortunate the chicken or the egg. We have this amazing potato variety, but we can't release it unless there's a market for it. So we need farmers to grow it, but people don't really want to take a chance on a new potato. So unless there's it goes up the food chain unless there's restaurants yeah. are calling for this variety or any variety, then there's not much we can do. I mean, we're we're still evaluating this potato. And so any farmer, you know, that wants it, if they contact our field tech manager, you know, in March, we'll can send them seed. And that's kind of what I've been doing. I've been talking to farmers, especially if I see them growing Yukon gold. To not grow that specific variety. Yeah, well, what I what I learned going to conference is we had to give one minute introductions all the time about our posters, and there's a hundred grad students doing that, so you always want to add some sort of tidbit at the end so they'll remember you. And I was at University of Guelph, which is where they developed Yukon Gold, and so I after I did my here's some of my research is about I said you know if you want to learn about potatoes which are much better than Yukon Gold, come find me at poster forty two. <laughs> yeah. 
that's great. I, I, get, I get a lot of comments about it. <laughs> uh, do you think the pandemic has affected in any way this work that, well, I believe that you were doing it before pandemic, but are you still doing it right now? Like all this outreach with farmers and restaurants? I've been doing it a little bit. It's, uh, it's a lot harder because I know a lot of restaurants are only doing takeout. Their budgets are lower. The farmers are also not doing well because they lost restaurant contracts. So Silver Queen Farm in Trumansburg, for example, spent the summer basically selling potato sacks out of their uh, out of their barn to just the local community. You know, you go in and you pay, put money in the box. And so a lot of the contacts I would find would be going to farmer's market or just talking to people. And so, yes, it's definitely shut that down. I'm kind of hoping that we'll restart once people are able to talk about. I got a few people at the farmer's market who were interested because I was able to drop bags of potatoes with them right before Thanksgiving. Be like, try this, you know, try to grow it. I think that's a great way to help our farmers in Ithaca and also to contribute to the local economy. Well, Thank you so much for being in our show and for teaching us more about potatoes. Anytime. I love talking about potatoes, plant breeding, teaching, improv, really anything. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that concludes our show for today. I would like to thank to our contributors, Kitty Gifford and Nancy Ruiz, and also to Joe Ruiz for the music and voiceover. Check out previous shows on locallysourcedscience.org and contact us if you'd like to join us as a contributor or as an interviewee. This is Mark Sharvari. Science out!